If you have your Bibles with you, you might like to be prepared and open in Revelation 19 this morning. So we're heading to Revelation 19. We're just going to read verses 6 to 9. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. I'll just pray before I share with you. Father, We just desire to hear from you this morning. We just open, would you open our eyes, help us to incline our ears, God, to hear what it is that you want to say to us. Holy Spirit, would you illuminate, bring truth, speak life to those things which is on the heart of the Father for us today. And we say in Jesus' name, Amen. You may remember that the last time I shared with you, which was about a month ago, I shared with you an experience that I had driving to work one morning, Um, that as I got closer to church, I had just an increasing awareness of the manifest presence of God in the car with me. And on that same day, um, once I'd arrived at work, uh, we gathered as a pastoral team for a time of prayer and worship. It was a very significant time. Um, We had a sense of the presence of God very powerfully, and it was particularly a significant and impacting time for me. I really was quite overwhelmed by the goodness of God. I have to be honest, it came a little bit out of the blue for me. I think sometimes we think that we need to work ourselves up for those kind of encounters. It had not been a particularly spiritual morning. The girls will probably tell you I may well have yelled at them while they were getting ready for school and um, driven them to school. But the goodness of God that we are able to encounter him and... So that was really what it was like for me. It was a really out of the blue kind of experience. And during that time, Adam began, Adam, sorry, Andrew began to prophesy about the preparation of the bride. And I think that he did share that a couple of weeks ago with us. And I had in that moment just a heart revelation, and I say a heart revelation deliberately because my head wasn't particularly engaged at the time, but this heart revelation that what I was experiencing was actually a prophetic outworking of these words that Andrew was speaking about the preparation of the bride and that it wasn't actually just for me personally but also for us as the church, as the bride of Christ. And... I am a fairly level-headed kind of a person and extreme experiences tend not to be a part of how I am, but I never want to limit God just because something that's happening to me or to other people looks weird. 
Um, but also we are not to be a people who just simply seek after the manifestations, um, that um, we are blessed to have a God who desires for us to encounter him and to experience him. But I think we always are to look for what the fruit of that is in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. So there were two lingering impacts or fruit, if you like, from this powerful encounter in my life that I want to share with you. The first was that I have experienced since that time a deeper longing and desire for Jesus. I've actually never experienced anything like it before. I've yearned for it, never quite been able to work myself up to it. And what I've been finding is that particularly in times of worship, I'm just regularly overwhelmed and undone by his love. He has captured my heart and that's what it feels like. He has captured my heart. And I am by nature more of a thinker than I am a feeler. I've always thought of myself as a head person rather than a heart person. And so this is actually quite unusual for me. And if I want to be honest with you as my church family, it's actually quite uncomfortable for me. I felt, I shared with Adam and Andrew um, earlier in the year, I think, I mean, it sounded like a, such an odd word from the Lord, but I said, I think the Lord's told me not to bother with eye makeup this year. And now I think I know why, because I keep ending up with panda eyes. <laughs> you boys probably don't understand that, but we girls do. So the second thing, so the first thing is this deep desire and longing. There's just this sense that he's captured my attention and my gaze. The second is that I am much more acutely aware and convicted of the issues and the distractions and the habits and the thoughts that are stealing my affection from him. If I was to sum it up, I'd use these two words, intimacy and holiness. That what I have experienced is a call to deeper intimacy and holiness. And I'm sharing this with you because I do believe this was more than simply a personal experience. And it was a very personal experience. But that there is something contained for us within this picture of the preparation of the bride, his church, for us now. And that he is calling us to deeper levels of intimacy and holiness. We are in a season where the hearts of the people are being stirred. You don't have to go very far at the moment to be having conversation, to be in conversation with somebody and phrases like, it's time, he's coming, it's not far, just rolling off in the hearts of his people. I think we are experiencing a deeper passion for worship and just the desire to seek after him. And there has certainly been a greater release of prophetic dreams and visions and people inclining their ears and their hearts to hear what he has to say to us at the moment. And there's this growing expectancy and excitement amongst us as God's people. The Father has chosen through Scripture to use various relationship pictures that 
are helpful for us to give us a handle or a grasp on his unfathomable love for us. That he's giving us something in these pictures that our mere human hearts can actually relate to. And he uses these pictures, I believe, to demonstrate to us that we have been invited into a covenant of love rather than a business transaction. That our covenant with him is relational rather than just duty. And so one of these pictures that's represented for us time and time again in scripture is that of the bridegroom and his bride. And as the church, we play the part of the bride. Ephesians 5 says that this is a profound mystery. I would not even attempt to try and explain or understand some of this profound mystery that he represents through the bridegroom and the bride. And I do realise that it may well be a little easier for us girls to relate to generic terms like sons of God than it is for you blokes to relate to a generic term like the bride. But I'm hoping today that you will stick with me and perhaps look past the notion of needing to be frocked up in a wedding dress to actually see what it is that the Father is wanting to say to us. And so what I want to start by doing is painting a picture for you in a story of a Jewish bridegroom and his bride as they are betrothed. So I'll start by asking you to picture a young woman living at home with her father, mother, brothers and sisters. One day a young man comes to her house. His choice of a bride has been chosen by his father. He has travelled from his father's house in order to ask for her hand in marriage. The young man brings three important things with him. A large amount of money a skin of wine, and a betrothal contract. The young woman's father goes with the young man into a private room and they discuss the price that must be paid for the young man, by the young man, sorry, in order to marry his prospective bride. And once this bride price is agreed upon, the young man must pay this price in full to the father for the marriage covenant to be established. A glass of wine is then poured. It is at this point that the young woman is invited into the room. She sees the glass of wine and she sees the young man who has come all this way for her. Perhaps it may be um, the first time that she's met him or perhaps they've known each other for a long time. In any case, the full terms of the marriage covenant are explained to her and her father asks for her consent to the marriage. The betrothal contract states clearly the bride price that is to be paid for her. It outlines the promises of the bridegroom to care for and provide for his bride. And it outlines her unalienable rights, meaning they cannot be taken away or denied. If she approves and consents to the marriage, 
she drinks from the glass of wine that has been poured. As a symbol of the covenant relationship that has been instituted, the young man also drinks from the same cup over which a betrothal benediction has been spoken. The young couple are now considered husband and wife, although their status is betrothed rather than fully married. By her partaking of the wine, the young lady is now wholly set apart, sanctified or consecrated for her husband and exclusively committed to this young man. She has willingly entered into the legal contract with him and now it's only divorce that can dissolve the union. The young man prepares to depart from her home. He's going away, back to his father's house without her, to prepare a place for her, his bride. He gets ready to leave but notices that his young bride is sad at his departure and leaves her a gift to remind her of him during their many months of separation. And he makes her this promise. In my father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may also be. Comforted by the promise of her betrothed, she watches him depart, knowing that he will return for her, just as he said he would. She keeps herself busy preparing for his return, even though she doesn't know exactly when that will be. The fact that she has been bought at a price, that she is no longer her own, but cared for and covered in a covenant relationship, brings her great comfort. And it gives her the assurance, along with his promise, that he will come. And so day by day, she watches for his return. She knows that she must be ready to go at any given moment, even in the middle of the night. So she keeps her veil and her oil lamp close to hand. As she waits for her wedding day, it brings her great joy to prepare herself as she undertakes a ritual cleansing of full water immersion and sews her wedding clothes and linens. Her betrothed, meanwhile, has not forgotten his bride and is busy, busy preparing a place for her in his father's house. He also does not know the day that the wedding will take place. In fact, no one knows except his father. His father will only give permission for him to go and collect his bride when he is fully satisfied with the living arrangements made by his son for his bride. When the time comes, the father gives permission to his son. The bridegroom takes three days to prepare before he begins his journey to go and collect his bride. He brings with him his two closest friends and other male escorts and this would usually have taken place at night by torchlight as they make a procession to the young lady's house. The groom's arrival is preceded by a loud shout and the blowing of the trumpet or the shofar 
in order to alert his bride that he is on his way. Her heart leaps for joy at the sound. She knows that her faithful waiting and watching for him has not been in vain. He is returning for her just as he promised. We are a betrothed people and our bridegroom is returning just as he promised. I wonder if you're honest whether like me this doesn't necessarily come up much in your thinking day to day. Do we live with this awareness daily that we are a betrothed people? In the early church, they talked about the return of Christ constantly. Here are a few facts for you from Scripture. Jesus' return is explicitly referred to over 1,845 times across the Old and the New Testament. Out of the New Testament's 260 chapters, there are 318 references to his second coming. Jesus' second coming is mentioned eight times for every reference to his first coming. And in scripture, people are exhorted over 50 times to be ready for the return of our bridegroom. Jesus is forever our saviour. He is forever our healer. But he is also our bridegroom and the extravagant lover of our souls. And we too are heading for a wedding feast. Living with this perspective changes us. There is such a richness in this picture of the bridegroom and the bride. But this morning I just want to finish by looking at three ways we are to live as a betrothed people. So number one, as a betrothed people, we live in a covenant relationship. Betrothal was not like our modern-day engagement. It was actually a legally binding contract that could only be broken through divorce and the conditions for the divorce were very specific. We see that in the case of Mary and Joseph where he sought to divorce her quietly because of what had appeared to him to be her unfaithfulness. As a bride, we have willingly entered into a binding covenant relationship with our bridegroom, Jesus. Ours is not a casual relationship. We have been bought with a price that has been paid in full. And Jesus paid a high price for his bride. He poured out his life for us. This gives us the assurance that surely he will return for us because we were not simply a casual purchase. As a betrothed people, we are to remember that he who promised us is faithful. A covenant relationship brings us assurance and it brings us security, but it also brings us responsibilities. 
rather than making us feel entitled, it is to produce in us a love so tender and deep as we return the affection of our bridegroom that he first showed us. We are to live in this constant awareness that we belong to him. We are in covenant relationship with him as his betrothed. Secondly, as a betrothed people, we live in anticipation. So the bride watches and waits, wondering and anticipating the return of her love, the bridegroom. I wonder, did she send her friends to check out whether the house was nearly finished yet as she grew in anticipation of them being together? Did she twist and turn the gold ring on her finger to remind herself of her bridegroom's love and affection? Did she pour over in her mind the promise that he had made to her of his return? We do not know the hour at which our bridegroom will return, but we too have been left with a gift and a promise. And what an incredible gift. John 14 verses 26 to 28 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I gift to you. Not as the world gives do I give. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. As a betrothed people, do we live with anticipation and expectancy? Do we live aware of our longing for Jesus? Are the affections of our hearts captured by the lover of our soul. And finally, three, as a betrothed people, we are to live in preparation. Our anticipation leads to the desire to be prepared when he comes for us. We are called to be prepared and ready in the midst of our watching and waiting for our bridegroom to return. In Revelation 19, we read this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen of the, is the righteous deeds of the saints. As a betrothed people living in a covenant relationship with our bridegroom, anticipating his return, we are to live prepared and ready. And preparation is intentional and it's focused. In the context of a covenant betrothal relationship, preparation includes being faithful, living in purity, because we belong to another. And so we live in readiness for him and him alone. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, You must worship no other gods, for the Lord whose very name is Jealous is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. 
This word for jealous is only ever used about God. And it means he will bear no rival. He will bear no rival. He is jealous for our affection. We obviously cannot sanctify ourselves, but we are to consecrate ourselves to him. That is, we are to set ourselves apart for our bridegroom, exclusively committed to him. So as I finish today, I want to ask us this question. Do we live fully aware of the covenant relationship we have as a betrothed people? Do we live in anticipation and preparation with the longing of the bride for her bridegroom? Are our hearts ready? Revelation 22 says this, The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And as we prepare our hearts before the Lord, I just want to read to you from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Today as we take communion, we do so together as the bride of Christ, remembering our bridegroom. We demonstrate that we have not forgotten him, nor the covenant that he has made with us. We remember the bride price that was paid for us in full as he poured out his life for us. And we declare our desire to remain faithful while we wait for him to return. In the liturgy of the church that I grew up in, for Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again.